book of Ephesians. I wanted to just address the Father's duty to you this morning out of the book of Ephesians. As I mentioned earlier, there's not a, there's not a lot said directly to the Father, not a lot said directly to children. There's a couple passages, at least in the New Testament, that address it. But I thought I would encourage us this morning regarding a father's duty. Look at Ephesians 6.4. We'll just work through that text this morning. And then we'll jump back into the book of James and finish in the next weeks in the book of James. But it says this in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's the scripture this morning, and I just wanted to highlight two preliminary observations regarding the father's duty, okay? One is that fathers bear the responsibility of the parenting team. I mean, that is just clear. It's stated here. You know, it's interesting in 6.4 as you look down, it's the word patera. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But in a Hebrews 11.23, that same term for fathers is also used of parents. But I think it's very well addressed here to fathers specifically. I say that because if you back up in the text, in 6.1, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, and that is a different word for parents than the one mentioned here in 6.4, so it could be parents in 6.4, but I think specifically geared in the context to fathers, but the father bears the responsibility of the parenting team. God has placed the father as head in the family unit, and he is the spiritual leader of the home. Now, that's observation number one. Number two is that the duty here of the Father is only made possible by being filled with the Spirit. I think if I don't say that up front, um, it could be dangerous. If you look back in chapter 5, where it says, Do not get drunk with wine in 5.18, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit... And he addresses that subject, and then he goes on to talk about what those spirit-filled relationships look like, both for wives and then husbands, and now in chapter 6, for, parent, for children, then parents. If the Spirit is not filling, filling you, your father's duty will be impossible to live out. So here seems to be the flow of the text this morning. If children are commanded to render obedience to their parents, stated in Ephesians 6.1, fathers now are commanded to not provoke their children to anger. I mean, even when you look at that thought, look again at 6.4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, you, you kind of grapple a little bit in the historical background that th- there is a potential for the unbiblical use, if you will, of authority to provoke one's child to anger. In fact, I would be as bold to say that when Paul made this statement here in Ephesians 6, 4, it was shocking for people to hear that. Shocking to hear that instruction would be given to a father to not, in this case, 
provoke their children to anger. And the reason I say that is I mentioned a couple weeks ago in my Mother's Day message that there was a Roman law called patria potestis. And what that word meant is the father's absolute power. And it allowed, did this Roman law, the father to have absolute power over every member of his family. In fact, Barclay in his commentary said that he could sell them all as slaves. He could take the law into his own hands and punish any member of his family as severely as he wanted, even to the point of inflicting, Barclay said, the death penalty. And he actually had that power as long as he lived. In fact, they provoked their children, frankly, their entire life. It was said back in biblical times in which this was written that a Roman son never came of age. I mean, never. I mean, I think we make distinctions, certainly in our culture today, that, um, that they do come of age. And sometimes young men live in the Peter Pan syndrome that someone had uh, discussed that. But here, a Roman son never came of age because when he even when he was a grown man, if the state had crowned him with honors, he remained within the father's absolute power. In fact, one historian by the name of Becker wrote this, quote, he said, the great mistake consisted in the Roman father considering the power which nature imposes as a duty on the elders of guiding and protecting a child during infancy as extending over his freedom, involving his life and death, and continuing over his entire existence, end of quote. So the father in this culture had absolute power. And, and yet what's true is that the Scripture nowhere gives parents and nowhere gives fathers dictatorial authority over children. In fact, what the scripture would say to you fathers, as I preach to myself, it would call you a steward. That into your life, into your family, that God has entrusted to you a stewardship. And you will be judged by that stewardship, and you will be judged, and I don't mean that like in a rude way, by what is written and stated here in the book of Ephesians. And so it was against that backdrop, if you will, historically, that Paul wrote the Father's duty. Now, as we look here this morning to Ephesians 6, 4, two commands are given to fathers, okay? I mean, again, you, look, you, scan, you can scan the whole New Testament, and yet when you scan it all, there's just a couple principles that emerge from it. And certainly in this text, there's two commands given. It's not hard to understand. He first tells the father what he must not do, okay? okay? And then he says, secondly, what a father must do. He tells a father first negatively what not to do to provoke your children to wrath. And then positively, and we'll finish on that, he encourages and commands a father what to do to bring them up 
in the instruction or the discipline and instruction of the Lord, okay? So let's just look at those two commands and remind ourselves this morning what the Word of God would say to us as a group of fathers. And let me just encourage you. I don't, I'm not coming. I always want to sit under the Word for my own heart. And I don't come as to think that um, our families are in desperate need of help. In fact, I actually think the opposite. I actually think that one of the things the Lord has done at Grace Church of the Valley is give us tremendously strong families, strong heritages, strong upbringings. And I see that the way that you fathers are parenting your children. So know that my heart comes to you out of love even this day, out of encouragement. But very well, if we're stewards, let's look to the Word of God and remind ourselves what the Scripture says. Okay? First, what not to do. Look at the text. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Stop there just for a moment. Here's what not to do is to provoke. And the word here is in what we would just call a present imperative command. Some people say that it's an exhortation for them to stop an action that was ongoing. We don't always know that, but nevertheless, it's a present command. And you say, what does it mean? Well, a, a father here is instructed to not provoke. And I think we understand that. It just means to, to make angry. In other words, a parent, and specifically here a father, is to not arouse a child to anger, if you will. Okay? It is, in the biblical word, to press someone to the boiling point, to press them so far where you make a child angry or to press them in such a way that you create exasperation in the life of that child. Now, let me be clear with you. It doesn't mean that a parent and a father is to never cross a child's will or deny their selfish desires. We would understand other scriptures would say that is what parenting does involve because in the heart of a child can be selfishness, there can be immaturity, there can be sin. But nevertheless, what he's going to say here to these fathers is to not provoke your child to exasperation, to not provoke them to anger. Now, you might ask, how does a father provoke his child to anger? Okay, I'm glad you asked that. And uh, let me just, for the sake of uh, spelling this out, give you just a, a number of ways how a father can provoke his child to anger. I mean, if that's the command not to do it, how does a father actually do that? And I've pulled together a number of sources over the years here on provocation and what that looks like. And so there's a number of sources coming in and out of this, and I've kind of collected them and put them in a series of eight ways that a father can do this. And of course, these are ways for us just to be in prayer for one another, to encourage each other, to admonish each other where we see this take place. But number one, a father can provoke his child by being overprotective, by being overprotective. You can exasperate a child that way. In other words, out of concern for their most precious possession, a parent can provoke his child to anger by overprotection. In other words, just smother that child. Don't do this. Do this. Be careful. Watch out. 
I don't want you to be near that. You might get hurt. You could fall. You could get poked. You could get pinched. You could get pulled away. You could contract an incurable disease or whatever. I mean, if you're in the life of your children, if you overprotect them from all of life, you smother their very existence. You hover over your child, constantly questioning that child, constantly warning that child, constantly admonishing that child against the what-ifs of life. And you end up, though that's not your heart, hindering their development by not allowing that child to take any risk. And when a child is overprotected, it communicates a lack of trust and a lack of confidence. It says to them, we don't trust you to take risk. And the child either gets mad or they do it when you're not looking, and either way, you lose. And so here, we've got to always be able to let them have a degree of freedom. In fact, I saw a degree of that freedom this week at Hume Lake. There was a bunch of kids from our church there in the little in the lake and just kind of on the pond, and they pulled out of the pond a big, fat, I've never seen one like this before, bullfrog. I mean, it looked like something that came out of the demon locusts below the earth feature in the book of Revelation. They pulled out a bullfrog that was about this long. And I had never seen it. And the kids were squeezing that bullfrog almost to the eyes bugged out. And, and I was just watching because they let that, their children play with that bullfrog. You know, I thought a lot of parents wouldn't even let their kids touch that thing, you know. And it was amazing to watch. And you say, that's a little thing. Well, no, it's not really a little thing. You begin to watch over every single element of what they do. You'll for, for sure guaranteed to produce anger in a child. But secondly, okay, just rather quickly here, you can provoke a child by, you know this, by showing favoritism, okay? If you want to provoke a child to anger, then what you just do is show favoritism amongst the other kids by pitting one child against another child. I mean, this doesn't allow in any way for differing abilities, different skills, different personalities. If you ever say to your child or to your daughter, why can't, or your son, why can't you be like your sister? Or why can't your grades be like your brother? Or you say in another conversation that they overhear, we thought we were done having kids and then you came along. I mean, when you begin to communicate favoritism, it's called manipulation. It tells the other children that I like your brother or sister more than you or that my love for you is conditional based on your performance. And this kind of thing will frustrate your child to no end. So when Paul says, don't provoke your children to anger, certainly he speaks of overprotection. He speaks of showing favoritism. I mean, you remember back, maybe some of you have been going to Scott Booker's Sunday school class on the book of Genesis. Go back to this family alone. Isaac favored Esau over who? Jacob, right? Then Rebekah preferred Jacob over Esau. Then as Jacob grew up, he favored who? Joseph over his brothers with the coat of many colors. And then his brothers hated Joseph for it. It was one of the most dysfunctional families in the Scripture. 
And when you begin to show that kind of favoritism, you're in trouble. So don't ever compare one child with another. If you do that, it will be a sure way to provoke your children to anger. Number three, you can provoke your, chil- your child to anger through discouragement. I mean, if he, if he tells fathers, don't provoke your children, so, okay, how do we unpack that? You can do it through discouragement. I mean, if all you do is focus on their failures and you say to them, you're not smart enough or you're not good enough, you can begin to develop a critical spirit towards them. You can begin to be unfair to them, impatient with them, unkind to them, begin even to call them names. You can discourage a child. I'm thinking of one father who said to his son, you're going to grow up and never amount to anything. Listen, if you begin to tell your son that over and over, you will create a child and even a grown child that has anger in his or her heart. So all you have to do is not give any approval. You can destroy their initiative. You can squash their incentive. You can provoke your child to anger by simply not praising them and simply by not encouraging them. And so Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. In fact, there's just one other scripture that fathers are addressed. Would you just turn right a few pages and go to the book of Colossians? Look what Paul says there. Very interesting. In 3, chapter 3 of Colossians, very similar to the book of Ephesians. Do you see that in 18, 318? Wives, submit to your husbands. This is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Verse 20, chapter 3, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now watch this. Fathers, same word here, do not provoke your children, and here's why. Lest they become what? Discouraged lest they become sullen, if you will. In other words, if you're not careful, you can crush them. So imagine when Paul said this, even though there was that law in Roman law that gave them absolute authority, and Paul says, no, here's a command from God to not discourage your child. I mean, fathers, it's very important, even when we are talking with our children, that we preserve their dignity whenever possible. Be very careful to not embarrass them. Be very careful to not humiliate your child before others. Never call them names. Never make fun of them thus. And so you go on, and there's more there to be said. But number four, okay? Number four, you can provoke your child to anger through neglect. I think you know that. Through neglect. Just don't talk to them. Don't play with them. Uh, Don't be with them. MacArthur made this statement. He said, make them feel like an intrusion into your life. Fail to sacrifice for them. Leave them all the time. Make them, he said, fend for themselves. Make them fix their own meals. Make them buy their own stuff. Get their own transportation because you can't be bothered. Don't let them get in in your way because you've got your stuff to do. Make no sacrifice for them and they'll resent you, he said. End of quote. I mean, you just, you can neglect them and you can create a child that's angry. I think of a pastor I was reading about this week, a well-known pastor who was traveling around the country to address youth groups. And as this pastor was home, he overheard his little boy in the backyard talking to a friend next door. And he said, do you want to play catch? And the boy said, no. He was going to the park with his dad 
Then the youth pastor's boy said to his friend, Oh, my dad doesn't have time to go to the park with me. He's too busy with other people's children. I mean, it just shattered that dad. And he soon changed ministries so that he wouldn't be gone from his family all the time. And so, fathers, I would just say to you, it's very appropriate to spend quality time with each of your children and to be sensitive to all of them at their various levels of needs and whether it be emotional, physical, social, or spiritual, we have to let them know that they are a priority in our life. But you can provoke them through neglect. Number five, you can provoke your child to anger by, and you know this, by disciplining them in anger, okay? By disciplining them in anger. And so be careful not to discipline in anger. Children can be battered physically, They can be devastated verbally, and fathers are stronger. They argue better, but be very careful in your effort to win an argument that you don't provoke your child to anger. Norman Wright, uh, a counselor, was just commenting on the subject of anger. Listen to what he said. He said, anger can motivate you to hate, wound, damage, despise, loathe, vilify, curse, ruin, and demolish. And when we're angry, we might ridicule or get even with, laugh at, humiliate, shame, criticize, ball out, fight, crush, offend, or bully another person. And then he said this, were such actions vented on our children, think of the damaged relationships which can occur. They have no way to defend themselves from our wrath. He said, instead, they just absorb such meanness right into their little spirits and they become angry. He said, so the cycle perpetuates itself because anger begets anger, end of quote. I mean, it's true that some of the angriest people in the society are people who have dads who are physically or verbally abusive to them. And so we need to be very careful to not discipline in anger. And so he says, don't provoke your children to anger. But sixth, okay, you can provoke your child to anger here through false expectations. Through false expectations. I mean, make them do something they are physically or intellectually unable to do. I mean, that could just be devastating to a child who most children love their parents and want to please them. And they don't quite understand what needs to be done or if they are physically incapable, it will provoke them to anger. Like playing sports, if I just gave an example. Because you want them to be like you. And some dads use their kids as kind of a second life, forcing them to achieve what they never did. You have to be careful in the unique makeup of each child, each son, each daughter, that you don't begin to live a second life out through them and give them false expectations. I mean, that could happen in sports, could it not? It could also happen in, in grades, in academics. I know some people who feel so threatened by their parents to achieve a certain academic standing in school, and I'm not even talking about high school. I've been around students. I was a college pastor for many years, and it was amazing some of the pressure when I was down south, and I had students from UCLA and students from USC and from Cal State Northridge and a number of JCs in the master's college, the pressure that some of them were under. 
I mean, this is a big deal today. And it makes me think that it's also a big deal even cheating in school, whether it be high school or college. And obviously, cheating is a sin. Lying is a sin. But I think at some major universities before the class starts, imagine being in a class of 300 people. And you're just a number to the professor. And the professor has to stand up and warn people about this, you know, about cheating. Because what would happen at some of these major universities for these students to get ahead, they would send another student into their seat, into their class, sign a false name, and pass the test because that's a grad student who came in. The professor would never know. In fact, I've heard of one college, even in the state of California, that the police at that particular college, university, confiscated a box, and in that box was 300 identifications for students that were false. And it's unbelievable. They were made to create that so a student can walk into a classroom, take a test for which he, he shouldn't have taken the test. Someone would pay him the money to do that. And part of this is, is because there's so much pressure in the academic world, world to achieve that you could actually provoke your child to anger through false expectations. And this happens all the time. You just keep pushing and pushing and pushing until you and they are never content in anything and it is never enough. You can provoke a child through pressure to achieve. I think, fathers, I would just encourage you that, you know, ensure performance standards for each child is at a level that both challenges them to high achievement, but is realistic in that it is not above their ability to attain, whether it's scholastically, athletically, artistically, maybe mechanically, whatever it is, make sure that it's both realistic and it's understandable to them. But number seven, you can provoke your child to anger, and I'll just be brief here, by reversing the God-given roles of a husband and wife. I mean, just have a home where the father doesn't live his mandate out in Ephesians 5, and the wife doesn't live that mandate out in Ephesians 5, and those roles become reversed where the mother is the leader and the father is passive and submissive, you'll produce anger in a child, either by reversing the roles or by creating disunity in the home, not having marital harmony. All these things lead to that. And so he just gives us instruction what not to do. Maybe the last one, number eight, you can provoke your child to anger through hypocrisy. Maybe it's the greatest one. I don't know. Through hypocrisy. I mean, all you have to do, parents or even fathers at this point, is live a double standard for them. You lie and you ask them to lie for you. I mean, if you live a hypocritical life, you fail to keep promises, you don't extend forgiveness to your children, though God Almighty has forgiven you, they'll see hypocrisy. And fathers, I would encourage you to realize that the ultimate hypocrisy is to set standards of behavior for which we ourselves fail to keep. I mean, this destroys a father's position. It destroys his trust. It destroys his confidence. Let me encourage you, fathers, to realize that when you make mistakes, you will never lose credibility with a child if you admit the mistake, right? I've never seen that. I've never experienced that. However, whenever you fail to admit a known mistake, you will lose credibility in front of him or her because they will see through the hypocrisy. So listen, fathers, we, we have an, an immense high calling, a stewardship 
And God says to us in the authority of his word here, do not provoke your children to anger. This is just a quick list through overprotection, by showing favoritism, by giving out discouragement, through neglect, through anger, through false expectations, okay, and through hypocrisy and the reversal of roles. If you don't live those things out, you'll produce anger in a child. It must stop. That's what's not to do. You say, what does a father do, though, okay? Let's go to the positive command, the positive command in Scripture. Look at it again in 6.4. Here's what a father is to do. And maybe as we turn to, to this, you know, as I said, there's not much said. So here's something to avoid, and now here's something to pursue. What does a godly father do? What, and, and I suppose you can continue it even to a grandfather who has this influence, but look what they're to do. It says there, but to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Here's the positive command. Rather than provoking, and, and I'm just going to break it out in, into a couple areas. He actually says three things. To bring them up, number one, to discipline and the discipline, and thirdly, the instruction of the Lord. Now, he uses that phrase, bring them up. It's the word for nurture, if you will. In other words, as a father seeks to walk in the Spirit and not provoke to anger, he's nurturing is the idea to bring up. He's raising, if you will, and I think the raising and the bringing up and the nurturing is physically, mentally, spiritually, he's raising them up to maturity. In fact, that word there, when it says bring them up, is used in Ephesians 5.29. Look over there. When Paul was addressing a husband, he said, for no one ever hated his own flesh, and here's our word, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. That word for nourish is the same word in Ephesians 6, 4, to bring them up. In other words, the father has the responsibility mandated by God, here it is, to help children flourish. They say, how do I do that? How do I bring them up? How do I help my child flourish? Well, he gives us two ways. Look at the text there. He says in Ephesians 4, you can see it, to bring them up, he says, in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Two ways. The first way, here's a father's responsibility, to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord. Now, that word for discipline, paideia is the word, is the ideal of training. So here's a father. He's not provoking his children to, the ang to anger. He's nourishing them. And as he's nourishing them, he's disciplining them in the Lord. He's training them in the Lord. And the word's very close to the next word for instruction. But the idea here of discipline, it is to be done with a view to correction. So here's a father. He's walking in the Spirit. He's under the Spirit. He's exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. He's not provoking in anger, but he's disciplining, if you will, okay, to, to a view with correction. It is the idea here in this word of training, correcting, educating your children to maturity. 
It is the shaping of the child's will through discipline. Now, let me say this. The discipline carries with it, in that very word, the idea of punishment for the purpose of correcting inappropriate behavior. So it's not as though the father is passive. No, he's active. He's not provoking, okay? No, he's bringing up into the discipline, and he's correcting inappropriate behavior. Will you just for a second look over to the book of Hebrews? Let me just show you. You know that that same word is found a number of times in the book of Hebrews. Look over to Hebrews chapter 12. Maybe it will just help us illustrate. This is what God does with us. God disciplines us. And the discipline here is he allows the trials. He allows suffering in our life. But remember what he said here to us as he disciplines his children. Look at at Hebrews 12.5. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, 12.5 of Hebrews, do not regard lightly, there's the word, the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He says, for it is for the discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you will be illegitimate children and not sons. He says, beside this, we have earthly fathers, here's our word, who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For he says, the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so he addresses there that aspect of God disciplining us using trials, using suffering. But he says in that, God discipline, it demonstrates his love for us. It makes us holy. It produces righteousness, if you will. And so like a surgeon's scalpel to cut out the cancer Our Lord brings healing to our soul by the discipline that he inflicts upon us, okay? Now, what's fascinating, and don't miss this connection, and I hope you don't miss the intent of Scripture. He's to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. But Proverbs connects discipline with the rod of correction, okay? Now, I, I know that our society won't look at this in a way, but, you know, we want to honor the Lord here. Proverbs connects discipline with the rod of correction. Let me show you. Look over in Proverbs, and this is probably beyond the scope to unpack this completely, but in the book of Proverbs, it speaks there of the discipline of the Lord. Look there in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24, and I'm giving instruction to you fathers, especially with little children, okay? It says there in Proverbs 13, 24, and you've seen these texts before, whoever spares the rod, what? Hates his son, 
Okay, but look at the next phrase. But he who loves him is diligent to what? Discipline him. Fathers, young fathers, if you love your children, if you love your children, you will, verse 24, discipline him diligently. He who spares the rod, if you will, in verse 24, actually hates his son. So here is a father, okay, under control of the Spirit, full of the Spirit, now nurturing his child, disciplining his child. And the discipline here is a form of punishment, obviously never in anger, though. Look over at Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22 in verse 15, a classic verse where it says there that folly is bound up, 22.15, in the heart of a child. But watch this. He calls it the rod of what? Discipline drives it far from him. Folly, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline is going to drive that foolishness far from him. Fathers, listen. If you love your children, if you love your sons and daughters, then you're going to lovingly correct them, admonish them, even warn them. And here, you're going to discipline them in the Lord. Look over just at the next chapter in chapter 23. It says this in verse 13. It says, do not withhold, what? Discipline from a child. What's he talking about? Verse 13 if you strike him with a rod, he will not, what? Die. Now, listen, I have seven kids. That's not the only form of discipline, but it is a method, is it not? It, look, look at it again. Just This is the Scripture, 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Verse 14, if you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from what? Sheol. Wow. So listen, fathers, you say, well, gosh, I, you know, and this is where mentoring comes in and other older people in our church. If you're a young father, this will be very, very important. Because here, if you're going to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord, Proverbs is going to connect it here to the rod and obviously never to be done in anger, never to hurt or injure that child. But it's, if you will, to drive and correct the foolishness out of that child. So here's the biblical mandate. A father is never provoking to harshness. He is a teacher. He's imitating God in his home. He's disciplining his children by educating, by correcting for the purpose of holiness in the home. And just as God the Father disciplines us through trials and suffering, a godly father is ever instructing his child here in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. In fact, go back to Ephesians. Look at there the, the second exhortation. He, he, it's, a, it's a positive command. He says, you bring them up in the discipline. And then he says, and I don't want to miss this. He says, the instruction of the Lord. Do you see that? The instruction of the Lord. Now, that word for instruction, 
that maybe sometimes you've held a Bible before. It says the admonition of the Lord. Here the ESV, the ESV says instruction. It's the word nuthesia, okay? It's a compound word. Here's what instruction means. It's a compound word from nous, which is the mind, okay? And tithemi, which means to put, okay? So as you put those words together, it means to put or bring to the mind or to admonish is what the word means. And so here, fathers, a father is a teacher. You might hear me listening to me. I'm up teaching now. But listen, you are a teacher. You are a teacher. You are a teacher. That's given for emphasis three times, okay? That's what you are. And primarily here, okay, listen, it says by instruction, okay? In other words, I really believe Paul is saying to you fathers, you are a teacher here by the spoken word is, is really what the word means. By the spoken word. It is a training by word. You are teaching. You are warning. You are encouraging. And the issue here is what is said to the child. So you got discipline, which involves the idea of correction and could be physical at that point as you correct your child. But as you're doing that, hear instruction, you're ever a teacher. And this is not a passive word. There is an earnestness to it, the instruction. There is a tenacity to it. Listen, beloved, do you remember the story? Certainly you do. In 1 Samuel 3, when Samuel first heard the voice of God. And do you remember, I mean, think about this, what God told him. God told Samuel, who was raised in that temple as a little boy, that he, God, was going to judge the house of Eli, the then high priest, and judge Israel. Imagine that. I remember he had to tell uh, Samuel, he had to tell the, the judge at that point, Eli, what was told him. And he was going to judge Eli. And he was going to judge Eli's house. And you say, why? Well, here it is. Just listen. 1 Samuel 3.13. God speaking. I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves. And here's the scripture. And he did not rebuke them. Wow. He's going to judge Eli's house because his sons, in essence, were wicked. And his sons brought a curse on his house. And now all the household for this simple reason. That Eli did not rebuke his sons. He did not instruct his sons. And later in that book, his sons were slain in battle. And when Eli heard the news, he fell backward and broke his neck. And in one fell swoop, the high priest and both his sons were dead. Why? Because Eli failed to rebuke his sons. And so here is a godly father. They're to be with his children. They are to be instructed, disciplined, and brought to maturity through teaching. And so I just remind you of that as I remind my own heart. Look over in Proverbs just for a second, okay? 
I don't want to miss this. You think, okay, Scott, what do you mean instruct? What, what do you mean uh, instruct them in the Lord? Well, we said here, you're talking to them. You're putting to mind the truth of the Word of God. You're not depending on me. Now, you know that. You're, you're not dependent on me. No, no, you're a teacher in your home, okay? And you're putting to mind... now. Look in Proverbs. It says the discipline and instruction. Now listen, you don't want to get all messed up on the, on the grammar. It says the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But there's a way that you can translate of the Lord. It's probably better to translate it, the discipline and instruction about the Lord. So here's a father in his home. He's a teacher. Now look in Proverbs 1.8. It says this, and you know this. It's Solomon, if you will who's got his arm around his son, and he's walking through life with his arm around his son, showing him what to look for. And here, wisdom is personified. But look what he says in 1.8. Hear my son, your father's what? Instruction. Now listen, I'm not talking to the children here. This is Father's Day. The father's instructing. He's coaching. He's training. He's mentoring. And he's telling now his son to hear his father's instructions. Certainly look at 1.8. And forsake not your mother's teaching. It's all right there. Look at chapter 2 in verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, In other words, he's telling his son, listen, you need to listen to me. You need to receive my words. You need to treasure up my commandments. In other words, the father is giving them to the son, and the son needs to be hearing. But what I'm getting at is if you're never instructing, you're you're falling short of the instruction that is to be given. Look over at chapter 3, the next one. Chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching but let your heart keep my commandments. And here it is in the promise. For the length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. My son, do, and we just quoted that, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Glance down at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Look over at chapter 4.1. It just continues. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction and be attentive that you may gain insights. Look down at chapter 4, verse 10. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. It's a father pleading with his son. But the point is, the Father's giving instruction. Listen, I'm thinking of all the babies that are born in our church. I just want to encourage you today. I'm not here to just gosh, rebuke you. You're a teacher. You're a teacher in your home. You're not to ever provoke to anger, but you're to bring up and nourish and cherish, if you will, not only your wife, but these children. And you do that here through discipline, and you do that through instruction. 
Look at chapter uh, 4, verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Here's a father commanding his son, listen to me. And don't depart from the ways that I've told you. There's an intensity to it, is there not? And I say this to you grandfathers as well. In fact, look over at chapter 6. You, and you, you can just keep going. My son in one. if you have put up security, begins to tell him how to deal with business for your neighbor and have given your pledge for a stranger, and he, he begins to instruct them. Look over at chapter 6 and verse 20. There he says, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching." Look over at chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Listen, dads, you're a teacher. You say, well, Scott, I'm not trained like you. I don't care. That's not what it's saying. I mean, I have training to do this. But listen, you're a dad in your home. You're a teacher in your home. And I want to encourage you to act like one. You say, well, pastor, what would I say? You just start telling them the scripture. You start raising them in the instruction about the Lord. You begin to tell them what you're gleaning out of the word. You begin to tell them about what you're finding in the word, and you keep going and tell them that because the teaching is about the Lord. There's so much there, but listen, as you do these things, you'll find God's fulfillment for you as a father. So do not... Provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction about the Lord. And when a Jew, Jewish person heard about the Lord, they knew that it was about his law. And here, as we're in the New Testament under the New Covenant, it's the instruction of his word. And so it's the instruction about the Lord. Would you do that? As you do that, God's going to give us strong homes. Amen? and will fulfill God's mandate for us. Would you bow your head with me? Bow your head with me. And let's give these things to the Lord as I call the worship team up. And fathers, as you think through these things, some of you are older, maybe your grandfathers, you put this to practice continually, even with your grandchildren, and I suppose your children. We're never quite done, are we? And as you are young fathers here, be reminded of these things. Be reminded of them. I'm thinking of that great prayer, that song by Steve Green, when he said, we're pilgrims on a journey of the narrow road. And those who've gone before us lined the way, cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring treatment to God's sustaining grace. He said, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race, not only for the prize, just as those who have gone before us. Let us leave, be, leave to those behind us the heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. Many of you have been given a wonderful baton by a godly dad, a godly grandfather, and now you have that baton and you need to pass it to another. Ask the Lord to help you. Ask him. This is impossible apart from God's spirit. It's impossible to keep this in the flesh. 
ask him to fill you with your spirit and allow you to obey this command. Love your children, fathers. Create a legacy for your family to glorify God. Walk in the spirit. Be filled with the spirit. Have joy. Laugh with your children. Build them in the faith. Teach them to love God's word. Teach them to love God's church.